0: Morning, everyone. It's been so nice to hear you all laughing this morning. Um, I don't want Jeremy to feel left out, or feel like he's been pointed out. Maybe it's better, like that he's the only one that's goofed up this morning. Um, I've been quietly laughing at myself all morning because uh, Jeremy got up and he, in the first service and he read the scripture passages, um, and he read the one from Matthew. And the screen was different from what he read. You might have noticed that when he read earlier. Which I do. Yeah but that's okay. It said, it said, uh, uh, do not store up yours for yourself treasures on earth where, and the screen said where, uh what is it? Something in moth Moths can destroy. And, you, and instead, he said a different word instead of moss. And I, was, and I thought you said bourbon. <laughs> but you said bourbon. And, but it took you saying it the second time. And I was like, why is he talking about bourbon? <laughs> We're in Kentucky, people. I don't know. Why? why, why? I don't know. I don't know. But anyway, I got it now. Vermin. Vermin. Yes. Uh, Today, we are continuing our uh, Generous Life series. Um, And we talked about this last week. When when churches talk about generosity, when we talk about giving and money, it can be a a touchy subject, one that some of us bring through the door with us a little bit of baggage. I know that there have been uh, messages I've heard that left a few scars. Uh, But what we're attempting to do is put our baggage down as we come through the door and to give this word generous another chance to take a fresh look at it. Why? Because it seems that there's this link between generosity and joy that uh, there seems to be that that the way that God made human beings, that there's this link between us giving and happiness, like even lighting up in our brains. It seems that it is a critical part of us coming fully alive. And so we're just getting curious about this word. We started last week with the story of Zacchaeus, which is always a fun story. You know, it's one of those we hear in Sunday school a lot and that maybe we don't pick back up again as adults, uh, but there's so much more to that story than just a short little guy climbing up in a tree. What we discovered was uh, this, this lesson about true generosity. What we see in Zacchaeus is that when he encountered and experienced the extravagant love and grace and acceptance of Jesus, like it did something in him. It moved him to action. And that's how generosity often happens. We experience generosity ourselves, which then leads us to be generous to others. Today, we're going to take a look at another story from the New Testament um, that, that hopefully will help us make some new discoveries. But first, to help us get warmed up, I want you to think about one of the greatest gifts you have ever received. Picture that gift in your mind and then think about what makes it stand out from all the others, okay? What is one of the greatest gifts you've ever received and what makes it stand out, I'm going to give you a second. Things coming to mind. I know it's a big question. Nine o'clock looked at me like I was crazy. How are we supposed to come up with this? But I didn't say it has to be the greatest, one of the greatest. You got something to mind? Turn and tell your neighbor what is one of the greatest gifts you've ever received and what makes it stand out. got something? Yeah. Oops. Dangerous. All right. All right. Now you have something to talk about after service if you didn't get done. All right. Uh, but somebody tell me, somebody report back. What's one of the greatest gifts you've ever received and Why? Birth of your daughter. Yeah, that's a good one. It's a good one. It's a good one. one. Top it. it. One other person. Yes? Yes? Ooh. Oh, so like, so there seems like there's a few things behind that. Like you're, if people don't know. She's a historian, people, okay? (laughs) She likes the old things. And then you're an engineer, right? So he like used his gifts and talents to make that possible. And had you asked for one or was it just like a surprise? Something that he just knew who you, because of who you were that you would like? Good job. Nick will be leading classes after service on how to give great gifts. Um, but um, I was talking to Miss Brenda this morning, and y'all might remember if you were here on Second Sunday, we learned that, that she has a few stuffed gorillas that she rides around with, right, and writes stories about. Well, she has a grandson who pays attention and uh, who loves his grandmother very much, so Miss Brenda is now the proud owner of a gorilla at the zoo in where is it? Fort Worth, Texas. Oh. Texas. Oh. Yeah. And so his name is Bruno, y'all, which is a great name. Um, and they like send her updates on Bruno, how he's doing, everything like that. That's beautiful, isn't it? <laughs> A little, a little small stuff, Bruno. Bruno because he's Aww. <laughs> So precious! What a great gift, right? Um, The year for me was 1996. Some of you weren't born yet, probably, uh, or are babies. Um, In 1996, it was uh, just the dawning days of something special called the WNBA. Um, The announcement of a women's NBA was bittersweet for me because I had dreamed of of this. Like that was the thing I was going to do with my life. I was going to start a women's NBA, and someone beat me to it. But I was. Was happy it had happened right um but everyone knew who was going to get drafted first in the WNBA. it was going to be cheryl swoops like everyone knew and so nike every everyone that cares about basketball knows oh <laughs> That's right, that's right, see, you know. Um, So, um, Nike never misses an opportunity to make a quick buck, right? So, of course, they're gonna capitalize on this. They announced that they're going to release a pair of swoops named after our friend Cheryl, and so I saw these, and of course, they're kind of strange, but that doesn't matter. You know, they're cool. This is when, like, the Rodmans were out and all that, if you were into those things. But anyway... So I I not so subtly hinted to my parents, like, this is it. This is what I really want for Christmas. And so um, you need to remember that this was the in the days the dark ages before there was like online shopping right the internet was just making its way to the masses at this point in time and so they couldn't just like log on and find me these shoes and i lived in powderly kentucky so you know there wasn't a shoe store there and so the only way they could find them was to like go to another city and look for them and so um they do this annual shopping trip they go out and they usually shop all day and they came back from that trip and they're like we're so sorry like, Okay. But like, there's this big problem. Like the demand is greater than the supply and these shoes cannot be found anywhere. And so I was like pretty devastated. Um, but by the time Christmas came around, you know, it's like, fine, it'll be all right. You know, it doesn't matter maybe one day, but on Christmas day, um, I'm opening up my presents from my parents when all of a sudden, like I noticed this large box in the back that has my name on it. And that was like, I- I don't remember asking for anything that would fit in that box. Like, I have no idea what this is. And so finally I get to it, and I rip the box open, and whenever I pop the top, there's another box inside that's wrapped up. And I open that box up, and, I, and there's another box, and I think, you see where we're going with this. And so there were several more boxes, and finally I pulled out this box that was the perfect size. It was the size of a shoe box. But even then, I wouldn't let myself get excited because, you know, like, it would just hurt too much. If I was wrong. And so I ripped open that paper, and when I saw that Nike swoosh on the top, like I lost it. But I mean, like, as I think about it, you know, like those shoes were great and all. Like, I think I still have them. I could never part with them. I'm pretty sure they're in the attic. Um, But Um, as great as the shoes were, what really made this a great gift for me in that moment was like how, how much I felt loved. Like, first of all, my parents had listened, like they paid attention, like this was important to me. But then like, I have no idea how many cities they went to. I have no idea how many shoe stores they walked into. I have no idea how many salespeople they harassed to make sure that I had those shoes on Christmas. Um, and that, that's what I find interesting about a great gift. I think a lot of times we assume that the greatest gift is going to be something that was super expensive, that costs lots of money, right? But in all actuality, the gifts that tend to stand out the most are those gifts that cost someone something else, that costs them their attention to detail, to, to knowing who you were, that, that costs them um, their effort to maybe create it, that costs them their time to perhaps go and experience something by your side. The truth of the matter is true generosity is not so much about the, the size of the gift as it is about the sacrifice that someone has made for you through it. It's a truth that's reflected in our scripture passage today. We're actually going to look at this, this story from the Gospel of Luke. You heard it from Mark earlier. They're essentially the same. Um, but the setting of both those scriptures is the temple in Jerusalem. And um, this is all playing out in the last week of Jesus's life. He's gone to Jerusalem. He knows what awaits him there. Um, and so he's teaching there in the temple courts. If we can go back to the last one for just a second, because um, that one's just not so clear, is it? But um, You can tell this is an extravagant place, isn't it? It's very nice. Um, This is a model. Um, It no longer stands there. It was destroyed in like 70 AD. But um, whenever Jesus would have been there, he would have been, um, as it describes it, sitting where he could see the court of the women. Go ahead and put up that next picture. Even though it's fuzzy, I think you'll be able to tell. The court of women is kind of right here. You can see that you can go further into the temple courts. But the court of women is called that not because it was just for us ladies. It wasn't because it was an Exclusive place for us, but rather it's called the Court of Women because that was at how far women could go into the temple. They could not go past this point. And so that tells you a little bit about um, their status. But on this particular day, Jesus is sitting there teaching and he is getting peppered with questions. In all actuality, I think it would be better to say he was having grenades launched in his direction. The teachers of the law have all gathered around Jesus and they're trying to to trip him up. They're trying um, to to ask him these questions in the hopes of of catching him saying something scandalous. They, They hope that they can at least twist his words so that they have a reason to condemn him. Because Jesus, he's messing with the good thing that they have going, right? Like they're in control, they have power, they have the prestige. And now here's this Jesus who has crowds of people around him, who's challenging them. And so they want a way to put Jesus to death. And so first, they bring up something that is still a contentious topic today. It is on every do not discuss list for every holiday. Yet there is always that one person in the family who's going to bring it up anyway, right? And the question was about taxes. Should we pay taxes to Rome? And uh, Jesus being Jesus, you know, the graceful person he was, he finds this, this way, kind of middle way through it that, that um, answers their question without riling anyone up. He says, give to Caesar what's Caesar's, give to God what's God. The first grenade is successfully ducked. But before he can even get his footing again, another grenade is launched in his direction. This time, the question comes from the Sadducees, who are the group of people that kind of are in power over the temple. They're the people in control. Um, They're the ruling class of people. And they ask him a question about marriage after the resurrection, which here's the kicker, y'all. The Sadducees didn't even believe in the resurrection. They thought there was no life after death, which is why the Sadducees were sad, you see. Yeah, it's a terrible pastor joke, but it makes the point. Um, and so here they are. They're asking this question just to make themselves look smart, you know, like trying to, to make a point. Um, But again, Jesus skillfully answers the question, another grenade is avoided. And by this point, the teachers of the law, they're starting to run out of of ammunition. After Jesus answers that second question, they kind of look at each other and they say, well said, teacher. And then Luke says, and no one dared to ask him any more questions. They decided they might need to put their grenades aside for a bit. However, now that the Q&A was over, that means the floor was Jesus's and Jesus, he had a message to deliver to them. You know, he has to be frustrated at this point. You know, here are these great teachers of the law who are supposed to be pointing everyone else to God, standing in God's own house, the place where God's presence dwelt with his people. and, And they're not in the least concerned about loving God or loving people. They're asking these silly questions to try to protect their own power and prestige and position. And so Jesus starts talking to his inner circle, to his disciples who are up closest to him, which is a brilliant strategy because this is how this works in my house. If you've got kids, I bet you know this is true too. In my house, if I ever want my children to listen to me, this is what I do. I act like I want to talk to Jeremy privately. And then all of a sudden, they want to hear every word that I say. They don't want to miss it. And so that's what I imagine happening here with Jesus. He starts talking to his disciples, but everyone else is now leaning in all the more. They don't want to miss a word of what is said, especially those teachers of the law who have been throwing those grenades in his direction. And so this is what Luke says in chapter 20, verse 45. He says, while all the people were listening, Jesus said to the disciples beware of the teachers of the law. Let me pause there because this is so great. You know, we've had these teachers of the law who are passively aggressively trying to catch Jesus in something, and Jesus just says, hey, let's get direct. Beware of the teachers of the law. They walk around in flowing robes and love to be greeted with respect in the marketplaces and have the most important seats in the synagogues and the places of honor at banquets. In other words, they want every else to see them and know who they are. These are all nonverbal ways for them to communicate to everyone else their advanced social status. They want to be seen uh, as respected. They want to be important. They want to have honor. But Jesus goes on to say that these very same men, they devour widows' houses. And for a show, make lengthy prayers These men will be punished most severely. The very people who are supposed to be pointing God's people to him, they are exploiting the most vulnerable among them. And then to add insult to injury, they're further exploiting them by acting like they actually care about them in their long-winded prayers in public. This isn't the first time that Jesus has called them and others out about this. Jesus has already talked about not doing our good deeds before others or or we will have already received our reward in full. He's already talked about not um, laying up treasures for yourself here on earth, but rather in heaven. But it seems like this message is just not sinking in for these great teachers. Remember, these are the people at the top. These are the leaders. These are the ones who are supposed to be be modeling for everyone else what it looks like to be God's people. But Jesus, he's not having it. He's not okay with this. He doesn't want his disciples to think that they're supposed to look like these teachers of the law, that they're supposed to follow their example. And so despite the fact that Jesus knows full well these teachers of the law want him dead, he doesn't hesitate even for a second to look at them and say, beware. This is not what greatness looks like. Still sitting there in the temple, Jesus, he looks up and he sees the religious rich coming to put their offerings in, um, in, the, in the court of women um, that had like 13 trumpet-shaped um, offering, um, offering baskets, or at least that's what they think. Uh, but as he looks up and he sees the religious people putting their gifts in the treasury, they're undoubtedly making sure that everyone is seeing them do this, right? It kind of reminds me of my son, Sam. He has started playing basketball, which is, you know, comical at that age. Uh, but every time he runs up and down the floor, he runs full force with his head turned, with his tongue stuck out, making sure we're not missing a moment of it, which has led to him running over a few children and falling flat on his face a few times. But that's kind of what these teachers of the law are doing. They've come into the temple courts and they have on their long flowy robes, right, you're not going to miss that. And then they're, they're praying loudly, these long winded prayers. And then they're probably taking their time, putting in their gift, one coin at a time after another, one after another. But can we be honest? While the sum that they might have put in might have been large, it wasn't costing them very much. You know, they had such abundance, parting with just a little of it. It's not something they're really going to feel. It's not going to make much of a difference. Plus, as they're making this gift, the key here is that they're gaining something. They are gaining the the applause and the approval of others who are watching. They are gaining control and influence, further securing their spot at the top, they were motivated to give by what they could get out of it, and y'all, that's what matters most to God our motivation. But that's when Jesus saw someone else in the distance, someone most people probably hadn't noticed, or if they had, they probably diverted their eyes. Someone who had not, no long, flowy robes to wear. Someone people probably avoided in the marketplace. Someone who probably struggled to get a seat in the synagogue. Someone who was absolutely not invited to the banquet. This person lived their life on the margins with no respect, no importance, no honor. She was a woman without power without prestige, without position. And she was also a widow, which meant she no longer had a connection to a man who could have have at least provided her with the crumbs of what was his. Widows were considered the weakest, the most defenseless people in society without any prospects of, of fending for themselves. No one would have ever put the the name widow and greatness near one another no one no one except jesus the standard of greatness in the eyes of people had had become how flashy a person was but jesus wants his disciples to know that god uses a totally different standard of measurement jesus watches as she puts two small copper coins into the the offering box And this is one picture I encountered that that depicts this. You can see the the two small coins in her hands as people are tossing in um, expensive jewelry and gold coins and bags of money at the same time. But these coins that she holds in her hands are called leptas. And leptas were indeed the the smallest in size and in amount um, in that day and time. Lepta means the thin one because they were thin. Um, And interestingly enough, when we went to the Holy Land this fall, me and Carla walked into uh, the first shop we uh, we'd gotten to visit in in Bethlehem, and they're like, here's wood carvings, and then um, here's beautiful jewelry, and then you can own your very own widow's mites, you know, um, we have the papers to authenticate that it's from Roman times. And it's only for a couple hundred dollars, you know? So it's like, leave it to us human beings to take something that was once worthless and try to make a big profit off of it. But um, as she dropped these small coins in, Jesus is watching. And Jesus points her out to his disciples and he tells them essentially there. There is what greatness looks like. Jesus said, truly, I tell you, this poor widow has put in more than all the others. All these people gave gave their gifts out of their wealth, but she, out of her poverty, put in all she had to live on. There was nothing flashy about this woman. But do you know what she was? She was faithful. And that is what greatness looks like in God's kingdom. That is God's standard of measurement. I'll tell you all, um, this past week, I wrestled a lot with just how much she gave. We talked about this a lot at Tacos and Theology, and this is a very triggering passage, right, Karen? We talked about this. We've uh, we've all kind of experienced being manipulated with it. Um, And so uh, as I reflected on it, it's like, if that's not the goal, then what is it? Um, I... I, um, I was just, you know, trying to figure out what is Jesus trying to say to us? But somewhere in the midst of that, I had um, Googled to find those leptists to show you all what they look like. And whenever I did that, those paintings of the widow popped up. I saw, I found the one that you all saw earlier. Uh, but then um, there were some other pictures that popped up that I hadn't ever really expected or thought about. You know, when I've always thought about this story, I've always thought about that first picture a woman being more advanced in years, bringing all that she had. But I never really considered that it was a younger woman that might have a child on her hip or in her arms as she came to make her offering. She put all that she had into the treasury that day with other people depending on her, perhaps. You know, is that what Jesus asked of us? What about all of our other responsibilities and commitments and the relationships we have with the people closest to us? Of course, we don't know her age. We don't know her situation, only that she was a widow. But as I wrestled with it, here's what I've become convinced of. I don't think that Jesus is giving us a mandate on how much we should give. I don't think he's saying to all of us, you need to put in all that you have. Lest we as human beings take that example and make it into another way to be flashy, into another way to say, like, look how great I am. But I do think Jesus was painting this dramatic picture of what it looks like to truly be generous. True generosity sacrifices for the sake of others. The size of the gift is completely inconsequential. It does not impress or offend God one bit. What, but what does matter is the spirit in which it is given. The motivation that is behind it. It cost her something to be faithful Sure, it cost her the amount she gave, you know, unlike the teachers of the law, this definitely wasn't something superfluous, you know, that that she was just skimming off the top of overabundance, nor was she giving in order to gain something back in return. This was not going to give her honor. This was not going to buy her importance. This was not going to gain for her status anywhere beyond where she was. But I have a feeling it cost her more than that amount in that moment. Like any great gift, it had cost her time and effort and intention. I'm sure before she had gotten there, she had had to wrestle with what it was she was going to give. She had spent time in thought. She spent time in prayer. She had spent time in discernment. And when she felt led to give this gift, then she again had to put forth the time and the effort and the intention to go and to give it. She followed through. She walked herself into the temple to present her gift to God as an, as an act of trust and as an act of worship for for the sake of his kingdom and for others that are a part of it. Our God is not looking for flashy people, but rather faithful ones who give not to elevate themselves, but rather for this, that sacrifice for the sake of others. That's what makes a great gift in his kingdom. Um, sometimes the front office at of the church um, has someone that's sick and out or is a bit overwhelmed, and so I'll step in and help them process the offering. Um, and whenever I do that, I, I'm always just like so overwhelmed and so grateful by the generosity of our people. But I don't generally generally remember like particular gifts, like who gave what or anything like that. There's just too many numbers. However, um, it's been about five years Uh, now and there is one gift I still remember. I was going through sorting all the envelopes and I picked up one envelope uh, from a young man who was um, a college student who I knew was facing challenges in his life Uh, but he put an envelope in the offering and he'd written on the outside the amount and a note and the amount said 47 cents and the note said I'll give more when I can. And as I held that envelope, I knew that I was experiencing true generosity in that moment. Sure, it cost him something, you know, like he'd given the 47 cents, when it might have been much more reasonable for him to just hold on to that for himself. But beyond that, it had cost him, you know, the time and the energy and the effort to decide if and how he was going to give that gift. And then it had taken him, you know, the, if you think about gathering up change and putting it in an envelope and placing it in a plate That's a lot of steps where he could have just said, it's 47 cents, why even mess with it? But he felt led to give, and he did. And so today I want to challenge you with your own envelope. You have one in your seat where you came in. True generosity sacrifices for the sake of others. And so what I want to challenge you to do this week is to do just that. I'm stealing this idea uh, from our friend Courtney who, uh, whose dad was known for, for sticking little gifts inside envelopes for her and putting them in places where she would find them to help her along. Her mother didn't know right until the funeral. She left that secret out then. Uh, but at his funeral service this, um, this past spring, she gave all of us an envelope and challenged us to go and be generous like him. And so with your envelope, um, I'm not going to give you a whole lot of parameters other than I want you to do something with this envelope that costs you something. It might not cost you money, but it will need to cost you some time, some energy or some effort. Maybe you'll use it to sit down and write an encouraging note to someone who desperately needs to hear those kinds of words. Maybe you'll use your envelope to uh, put a promise inside this envelope and give it to someone who's needing help getting something done. Maybe you'll use this envelope to um, decide not to go out and eat lunch one day this week and to put the amount you would have spent in the envelope and send it to some place like Hotel Inc. I don't know what you're going to do with your envelope, but... The goal is for us to follow the example of the widow and to give a great gift by God's standards, not to elevate ourselves, but for the sake of others. I can't wait to see what God does through does y'all, even though I won't know, right? It's going to be a secret, but that makes it so much more fun. Let's pray together. Lord God, you have made us in your image and God, you are so very generous And so, God, it's not surprising that you've hardwired into us this this experience of joy when we give like you do. You hold your hands wide open to us, freely giving us your love and your grace, your guidance, your presence. And so, God, today as we continue to worship, we pray that you would pry our hands open just a little bit more, that you would help us to to open our hands wide, that others might take and receive whatever they might need. Help us, God, to follow your example more fully, to be willing to sacrifice for the sake of others. We pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen.